You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. There may be other Garrett Ashley Mullet shows out there, but this is the one to beat, and you are listening to it. So congratulations. Welcome. This is episode 89 of season three, episode 154 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm so happy that you are here, that you are part of this, that you are benefiting from these extemporaneous thoughts, this stream of consciousness, which I am continuously, episode after episode, sharing with you, or at least I hope you're benefiting. That is the big idea. I want to be careful to not come across as conceited, puffed up, arrogant, self-absorbed. I hope that my tongue-in-cheek joking is not being taken as serious. The truth of the matter is that I want this podcast to be a benefit to not just myself, but to those who listen. I want it to be an encouragement. I want it to be thought-provoking. I want it to be an opportunity every episode for you to expand your horizons in a meaningful way and to meditate a little deeper on things that maybe sometimes we misapprehend the significance of. I hope that this is a value-added proposition for you and that I am consistently adding value to your life every episode you listen to. Towards that end, today is July 3rd, 2021. It is the day before 4th of July, Independence Day, the day that we celebrate every year in the United States of America as the birthday of our country. July 4th, 1776 is regarded among patriots, among those who wish to conserve the virtue of this country as the birthday, the day of birth for the United States of America. We don't regard 1619, when slaves first got off the boat here, as the actual birthday of this country. We regard the Declaration of Independence as the Independence Day, the birthday. You think about birthdays. What is it that you celebrate every year? If you celebrate your birthday, which maybe you don't, but supposing you do and assuming that you do, you celebrate the fact that so many years ago you departed your mother's womb and you came into the light for the first time. You opened your eyes, you stretched your lungs, you cried to expel the amniotic fluid from your lungs, to clear your throat, and to say, I'm here. So many years ago you did, and when we celebrate birthdays, we are saying that we are glad that you were born. I am glad you were born is something that I routinely tell my children on their birthday. I am glad that you were born. Some people might think that's a little bit odd and quirky, but 
I think it needs to be said explicitly that we're not just celebrating for the sake of celebrating because it's a tradition, because it's expected of us, going through the motions, checking the box. No, being intentional about this. Why are we celebrating? What does it mean when we celebrate something? What it means is that we are glad this thing came to pass, that this thing exists. Or in the case of a person, we are glad that this person is in the world and that we have this blessed opportunity to know them, to be known by them, to have a relationship with them, to be a part of their family, to be a friend of theirs, what have you. We are glad they are here. We're thankful for the fact that they are here. That's what birthdays and celebrating birthdays is all about. But when it comes to the birthday of a country, the birthday of a nation, if we are disinclined to celebrate, that would imply that we are not happy this country exists. We are not thankful that it came into being. We are not happy that it is in our lives. We are not of the opinion that it is a net good in the world. And half of our country today seems to think that it is not a net good that the United States of America exists as a country. Never mind that if you challenged them to pick a country they would rather live in, and if you had the wherewithal, could conjure up the funds, the resources, you might even offer to pay their fare. Well, let's get you where you want to go. Where do you want to live more than this country? Which other country is better? Which country would you like to live in more than you'd like to live in this country? We can make arrangements. We can help you to get there. We don't want you to be unhappy and here. If you do that, you will probably find them backpedaling and saying, well, no, I don't want to move. I shouldn't have to move. I want to make this country the way that it ought to be. And of course, the way that they think it ought to be is markedly different from the way those people who are referred to as conservatives think the country ought to be. I had the first session of Ingladii Veritas, the writing club, last night, 6 p.m. over Zoom. Robert McPherson the third also known as Bobby McPherson at the Reformed Conservative, and also Joseph Crampton, who is a a new acquaintance. I'm happy to meet him. Seems like a fine fellow. And myself, we are the founding members of In Gladii Veritas, which is Latin for the Sword of Truth. Great name, by the way. Good job, Bobby. I like it. I like it a lot. But we had our first meeting, and we talked about writing, and we had each written something and brought it to the meeting, and we didn't have a chance to really go over it in depth and discuss it and parse back and forth what was good and what was not so good about the writing, but we had some really good conversation. And one of the things that came up just by happenstance in passing was this little sidebar about how clunky some of the terms that we use are. So for instance, conservatives. Conservatives are not always about keeping things the way that they've always been, right? We don't want to conserve, for instance, the legacy of Barack Obama. We don't want to conserve the legacy of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We don't want to conserve the legacy of big government 
presidents and politicians and thinkers, we are not trying to conserve the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau just because he is an old-time thinker relative us, relative our time and place in history. We're not trying to conserve everything that is old. We want to conserve what is good. We want to preserve what is good. And if you want more backstory on who the thought leader was for modern conservatism, read Edmund Burke. Read his Reflections on the Revolution in France, his criticism of the French Revolution, his criticism of the ideas that were downstream of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. Man is the measure of all things. As Protagoras, the ancient Greek philosopher, once said, our feelings are the closest thing we can get to knowing objective truth. Our feelings are all we can really know for sure. So long as we know our feelings and what we feel like is true, that's as good as it gets. That's as, as good as we can do. Edmund Burke maintained, au contraire, Mesami, that there are good things that have been passed down to us through tradition, through legacy of previous generations, lessons learned, lessons hard learned through painful cost, heartache, disappointment, setback, Lessons embedded in tradition that we do well to take care before upending. If you embrace Thomas Paine's idea that each successive generation has the right to revolution, has the right to remake everything in society according to their preferences, then Edmund Burke can take a flying leap. He's just there for the status quo. He's just there to preserve his interest and the moneyed interest and the ruling class. Nah, don't listen to that guy. We are not beholden to superstition, to previous generations. It's not fair that previous generations should have a claim on our loyalty and that we should feel beholden to them. We, each generation, need to make up our minds what we're going to be about and reinvent the wheel. Thomas Paine was a godless man. He said he believed in God after a fashion, but his God was nebulous and was not a God of divine revelation or special revelation. Thomas Paine rejected the scriptures as authoritative. So also Thomas Jefferson with regards to anything but the moral teaching. He liked the moral teaching. He didn't like the supernatural. And so therefore he had a form of godliness, but he denied its power. And other similar thinkers around that time, around the 18th, 17th century, who were of that mindset, had a form of godliness, but they denied its power. They thought that they could become extra special by declaring independence from all tradition, from all precedent, from the superstitions of previous generations. And so they did. They believed that they would become more virtuous by declaring independence and thinking through everything on their own, Embracing radical doubt. Descartes had this idea of radical doubt. He was communicating something that took hold in the public imagination because there was an appetite for opting out and maybe taking a little bit of a middle road or just saying, I quit, with regards to the Protestant versus Catholic 
Christian versus Muslim contentions in Europe post-15th century into the 16th century. What is it that we're conserving if we call ourselves conservatives? Well, actually, as Bobby put it, aren't we for progress? Aren't we for moral progress when we say we want to go back to these principles of our founding? We want to upend and abolish some of these newfangled ideas like saying that there is a penumbra around the Constitution and that you can have rights that are alluded to if you squint your eyes, if you pat yourself on the head while rubbing your stomach counterclockwise, jumping on your left leg up and down for five minutes, you can perceive additional rights that the founders intended to tell us, but you can only see those additional rights that they enshrined in the Bill of Rights in the United States Constitution when you hold up the parchment under a full moon when the planets are aligned after having sacrificed a virgin. You can only see those penumbra rights in special circumstances if you are of a particular political persuasion. And anyone who says otherwise, who says, no, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is what it meant in the original context, here's all of this case law, here's all of this precedent, here are all these other instances where this has been interpreted, and this is what it means, what it means, what it means, what it means, no matter what you wish it meant. Well, those folks are decried as anti-revolutionaries, counter-revolutionaries. So the quirky thing is that progressives, so-called, actually are for conserving the legacy of men like Barack Obama and Lyndon Baines Johnson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. They are for conserving the legacy of these men and furthering that legacy, taking it to its logical conclusion. The joke's on all of us if we let them because that bridge is out. The train goes off into the wide, deep chasm, and we are never heard of and from again if we let them run the show. It's not progress that they want, actually. Those who hate God love death, according to the scriptures. And it just so happens that when a leftist, Democrat-infused, deep state IRS turns down 501c3 status for an organization, a Christian organization, that wants to encourage people to vote in accordance to biblical teaching, whether they vote Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, Green Party, Socialist, whatever that means, they just want people to vote biblically, to understand the mind of the, of the Lord, to understand the mind of God with regards to these political issues. A deep state, Democrat, leftist, progressive, IRS, Internal Revenue Service, turns down their 501c3 status because, in their own words, biblical teaching is associated with the Republican Party. By your own admission. By your own admission, Democrats, you admit that biblical teaching does not accord with your platform, with your position, with your aims, with your ends. You are godless. And those who hate 
God love death. You hate God and you love death. That's why you embrace abortion. That's why it is a sacrament to the left. It's because they love death. They love it. It makes them feel alive when they embrace death and reject God and they become wise in their own eyes and their foolish hearts are darkened. And it's on us to dissuade them. It's on us to stop the train before it goes over the side of the cliff because the bridge is out. So funny enough, conservatives actually are for moral progress. And insofar as we believe in transcendent truth, universal truth, a natural law, God's law, insofar as we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that governments are instituted among men to protect and preserve those rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, insofar as we hold those truths to be self-evident, we believe that moral progress requires that we depose the leftist, collectivist, godless, secular humanist ideology, which has become the status quo, and we put God's law or the natural law back in its rightful place. We become more fully, more truly, more purely the republic, the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Those are beautiful, beautiful sentiments. And unfortunately, tragically, there's a lot of folks, not just on the left, but in the middle, who don't want to celebrate the birth of this country because they hear talk like this, everything I just said, and they say, that's contentious. We're not supposed to get into that, especially as a Christian. We're supposed to be about the gospel. We're not supposed to get into that. You're going to offend people needlessly. Just let it burn. Let it go down. Let it be destroyed. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The quicker it burns, the quicker we can move on to the church being persecuted and Jesus returning. These things must come, but woe to the one, woe to the man through whom they come. Jesus says at one point, if we are complicit in it, should we look forward to that outcome and see it as a blessing to us? Or should we, like John the Baptist, keep preaching repentance until they take our head from our shoulders? I, for one, am convinced of the latter. And I'm sad. I am sad for those who don't believe that we should celebrate the birth of this country. We shouldn't celebrate the fact of this country's existence. The sins and foibles and fallacies of the generation that founded the United States of America are real. They were real. They extend farther than we know. They were deeper and darker than we can understand or appreciate. And yet, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. To preserve these rights, governments are instituted among men. That was not a sin to say. That was not a sin to sign. That was not a sin to erect a city on a hill to shine forth this cause of liberty for all the nations. I would argue that 
the United States of America was the logical outcome of the Protestant Reformation. The United States of America is profoundly different from Canada and from Mexico and from all the South American and Central American countries, and not just because of geography. The United States of America could be just as fractionated as South America is. Brazil, Argentina, Peru, all of these countries which routinely have coups and revolutions and juntas. We are not a country that was founded by Roman Catholicism. We are a country that took vast swaths of territory from countries which were founded by Roman Catholicism. Thus, if you will, proving in some sense that might makes right or that right makes might, as I prefer to see it. Right makes might. We had better ideas. Just like the Greeks and the Romans facing off many, many centuries ago, the Greeks had a proven method of winning battles and therefore winning wars. And the Romans did not win the first battles, but they did win the war because they adapted to reality. And the United States of America won this vast swath of territory from sea to shining sea because our leaders and our countrymen, our ancestors who contributed to this great country, adapted their approaches to reality. That's why this country has been so inventive, productive, capable, strong, confident, even to a fault, confident, even to a fault showing up all over the world, showing up in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, planting a flag and saying, we are Americans, and we're here to get stuff done. The Brits all too often say, maybe after tea. In the Middle East, they say, let's consult our clerics. In Asia, they look at their traditions, and if Confucius or Buddha have told them to embrace this meaninglessness, then it is what it is. And the problem of suffering is that we don't embrace the problem of suffering. We try to resist suffering. We should just embrace suffering. There's a fatalism inherent to Japanese culture, apart from the gospel, which explains why the United States of America won World War II and Imperial Japan did not even in the case of Germany. It was not an excess of Christianity that caused the Third Reich to rise and fall. If you read William T. Scherter, it was a dearth of Christianity which caused the German people to knuckle under Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. How did that work out for them? They almost got away with it. And then this, America, my country tis of thee, showed up. And you could say, ah, well, yes, it's a good thing America got into it because the Soviet Union, the USSR, Russia, Russia was going to rule the world because they were pounding down the door. Well, wait a second. We're not all speaking Russian, are we? Yes, there are a lot of socialists in this country because part of the downside of freedom is that 
people are free to embrace idiotic ideas like Bolshevism, like Marxism, like Leninism, like Maoism. Communism is a stupid idea, is a very stupid idea that has been tried a great many times. And it speaks to the progressive or rather regressive idiocy of each successive generation of communists that they think, despite a growing body of evidence that grows with each passing year and decade, that if we just try it again harder this time on a larger, grander scale, communism can work. No, it can't because you don't understand reality. You are insane. You are an insane person. You are a crazy person who does not accept natural law. You don't accept God's law. You reject God's law. And because you hate God, you love death. And that's why you're okay with Stalinist purges. That's why you're okay with Mao Zedong killing 100,000 of his own people, killing a million. You don't care because you love death. And you got to crack a few eggs in order to make an omelet. Whereas here in America, there's a profound difference in saying we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created, created, created equal. Not that they arise by chance. Not this nonsense of oppressor versus oppressed. Yes, there is oppression. And that's why this country was declared independent. Now, one can say, well, what's so special about the American Revolution, the American Declaration of Independence? What's so special about America? These 13 colonies, these 13 British colonies saying we are now a free, independent, united state. What's so special about that? Lots of countries have declared independence. Lots of countries have had revolutions and thrown off the old status quo and what do we say about Romans 13, which says that we're submitting ourselves to the governing authorities because we revere God and this founding father's generation and every subsequent generation of patriots that embraces these ideas are flying in the face of, they're contradicting, they're rebelling against not the authority of the British monarch, King George, but rebelling against God's authority by declaring themselves independent, free, and united states. What about that? Read some history, some British history. My wife and I, we were just recently, in the past day or two, looking at Ancestry.com, looking at our DNA results, and looking at our DNA ancestry ethnicity estimates. And she's actually got 5% on me when it comes to having Scots ancestry. I'm at 28, according to Ancestry. She's at 33. She's fully one-third. Scott in her DNA. Both of us are 42, 43%. I don't remember which is which. One of us is 42, one of us is 43. English and Northern European in our ancestry. So nearly half of our ancestry, of our DNA markers, correspond to people from Northern Europe and England. And I think that being a fairly broad area, it just goes to show how much intermixing back and forth. You have invasions and fights and wars and intermarrying and all that kind of stuff happening for a long, long time. She's got 2% Norse DNA, according to Ancestry, 2%, which to my mind implies that 
hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there must have been some kind of a Viking raider situation. We'll put it that way. Curious to think about. Maybe there was some intermarrying, but even so, there was a Viking raider somewhere in the family tree. I've got 2% French, according to Ancestry. And a good chunk of Germanic on my dad's side, I'm sure. Meanwhile, Lauren's got 8% each, Irish and Welsh. So she is very, very strongly British Isles in her DNA. With just a little bit of Norse, a little bit of Viking invasion DNA in there somewhere, somewhere in the family tree. But we're talking about it, and I'm thinking about what I know, which is just a small little bit compared to how much I don't know of the history of the British Isles, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. I'll be honest with you, my favorite ancestry genealogy is that on my mother's mother's side, the Scottish side, that's my favorite ancestry because I'm able to go the farthest back. And I just like the Scots. I like the cut of their jib. I like the way that they interact. It's not that they're perfect. It's not that they don't have uh, certain cultural defects or shortcomings, if you will. My ancestors got themselves into trouble plenty of times. And there's some things, some anecdotes that I read that I think, oh, that could have gone a lot better for all your descendants forever down to me if you'd approached that a little bit better, a little bit differently, a little bit less stubbornly. Mange Scott get. <laughs> but the history of Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, if you read into that, involves centuries and centuries of back and forth Rival claimants to the thrones, Scotland trying to declare independence or maintaining independence, England invading, Scotland raiding into England, England trying to raise up and bring down Scottish nobility and kings and rulers, all of this back and forth. And for those who insisted consistently on Scottish independence, the principle was we are a free and independent people, and we do not recognize your right to come into our lands and try to take over. We don't recognize it. We're not going to accept it. We're not going to tolerate it. We're going to fight you tooth and nail. Even if we die, even if you kill us, we're still not going to give up. From the grave, we will continue to insist that we are a free and independent people who have the right to self-determination. I want to recommend for you, if you Love America and you want to understand better. Where did these ideas of independence, declaring independence come from? And what made the American Revolution, the American Declaration of Independence, so unique? Yes, there were influences from all over. Yes, these men of the Enlightenment, these products of the Enlightenment were students of the Greeks and the Romans and plenty of other regions. But a lot of these thinkers in America were heavily influenced by the Scottish Enlightenment. How the Scots Invented the Modern World is a great book for you to pick up. Also, Born Fighting by former United States Senator Jim Webb. It's the story of the Scots-Irish in America. Scots who came to America after a stint in Ulster County, Northern Ireland, placed there to be disruptors of 
rebellious Irish Catholics. Read those two books to understand better how the Scottish Enlightenment came to grapple in such a unique way with this idea of authority. Who has it? Rightful authority. Where does it come from? You would not have had the American Revolution without the Scottish Enlightenment. You wouldn't have had the Scottish Enlightenment without centuries, nay, millennia of Gaelic insistence that we can be Christians, we can be civilized without knuckling under England, without knuckling under the Roman way of doing things. We don't need the Roman tradition. We have a strong enough Celtic Christian tradition. We've got Iona. We don't need Rome. We've got Iona. We have our own saints. We have our own clergy. We have our own traditions. We have our own scriptures. And then you fast forward to the Protestant Reformation and you get Scottish Presbyterianism and the Kirk. You get this mixing and infusing of ideas of individual liberty that as the Scottish join through the acts of union with England eventually, in large part because of bribes that worked, the Scottish nobility were bribed into signing the acts of union. At a certain point, the fighting Scots spirit redirected itself from fighting against the English to exploring the world, to colonizing the new world, becoming captains and explorers and colonizers. And that is not a dirty word to me, by the way. I don't think colonizing is a bad thing at all. I think colonizing is a necessary means to fulfilling the creation mandate, the dominion mandate. It's a necessary means of filling the earth and subduing it, being fruitful and multiplying. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, God says. Does that lead to conflict sometimes? Yeah. What doesn't? What doesn't? Don't be overly simple in your way of thinking about these things. Colonizing, oh, that's awful. That's horrible. You're stealing land from the Indians. Read 1491 by Charles C. Mann. It is not this rosy picture that anti-American, leftist, Bolshevik, envious, jealous nincompoops want to insist as they tear down statues of Ulysses S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln and they spray paint red statues of Christopher Columbus. I, for one, consider myself greatly blessed to have been born in the United States of America in the 20th century, at the close, the tail end of the 20th century, now to be coming to you from Greeley, Colorado in the 21st century. I consider myself exceedingly blessed. And tomorrow, my family and I will celebrate the fact that this country exists. And by God, we will take our responsibility as inheritors of this great birthright and privilege seriously. We will engage in our civil responsibilities and we will not shirk them and we will not cower because we hold nothing so dear as our life. It's this great line that Jeremiah Burroughs quotes from Pompeii, Roman general in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, in which Pompey's fleet, on its way to relieve the city of Rome, encounters a storm. And Pompey's men say to him, Sir, should we go around 
if we go through the storm, we might be killed. We might lose our lives. We might lose the fleet. Pompey says, it is necessary that Rome be saved, but it is not necessary that we should live. Fantastic. It is necessary that we take our civic responsibility as heirs of this great tradition, this worthwhile tradition of regarding natural law, God's law as preeminent, imperfectly as we may execute our duties in that regard. It is a great privilege to have those duties passed down to us. And things would not be better if we were running around the Amazon rainforest in loincloths, shooting monkeys out of trees with blowguns. That would not be a better life. No memory of the great heritage of our ancestors in that region who, again, if you read Mann, read Charles C. Mann, likely terraformed that entire forest, that entire rainforest. Most of the plants, these exotic plants that we think are just naturally occurring because they're, no, they're found nowhere else on earth. We've got to preserve the Amazon rainforest. Here's a wild idea. What if those were selectively bred by people hundreds of years ago who actually were very involved in molding and shaping their environment to suit their needs. It might just be that these pre-Columbian civilizations were doing a far better job of fulfilling the creation mandate, the dominion mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that they were doing a better job of that than modern environmentalists want us to. But I got to leave it there. I got to go. We've got guests coming over. We've got the Rogers family coming over. If all goes according to plan, God willing, we live and do this without. We have them coming over this evening for a meal. We've been wanting to have them over, having their family over for a long time, pretty much since we met them. They're dear, sweet people. I love their family, and I think they are fantastic, and I love talking with them. They're very smart, very bright, very creative, intelligent, insightful people, just fantastic people. I love being around them. I feel like we are a better family when we are around them and have been around them and they're a delight. We're going to have them over and we're going to have a meal together and chat, let the kids play and hang out. So I got to go and help my family get ready for that. But happy 4th of July to you. If I don't get another episode recorded tomorrow, if I do, we'll talk more about America in honor of the 4th of July. But for now, I'm going to leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great Saturday or whatever day it is that you're listening to this on. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.